last, uh, the whole month actually at these two anchors, Romans 8.29 and Ephesians 2.10. Romans 8.29 is that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's our character. That's a character issue. Ephesians 2.10, that God has good works. He's prepared good works in advance for us to do. He has a deal for us that's uh, our role in establishing and advancing his kingdom on the earth. So we've held on to those two things when we've been looking at David. David was a man after God's own heart. That was the, kind of the character component. And his call was to shepherd the people of Israel. That was his deal. And so we've been looking at him as a, as a real-life example of someone who held on to each of these values that we're trying to hold on to as a church, and I think uh, hopefully y'all are as individuals. We've said before, these are things God said he set up in advance. So anything God does in advance, it's a pretty big deal to him, and we want to get on board with that. So we've been looking at David for the past month, and today what we want to look at are two giants that can derail us. These two uh, obstacles, these two enemies, these two, these two giants come into our life. They will come in often, and they will come in repeatedly. And if we don't deal well with them, they'll, they'll, they'll knock us into a ditch. They'll cause us to disengage from God. They'll keep us um, from developing our character, and they'll keep us from doing the things that God has called us to. And the, the two giants are sin and suffering, and they always go together. Sin is always followed by suffering. Suffering is always preceded by sin, every time. If you see suffering, sin has been there. If you see sin, suffering is sure to follow. What gets tricky for us is it's not a one-to-one correspondence. Oftentimes, the person who sins does not suffer. And oftentimes, the people who are suffering have not sinned. And that murkiness is difficult for us. A lot of us have a fair meter in our heart, and it's not fair when we see someone who is sinning who's not suffering and someone who's suffering who hasn't done anything to deserve it. And it causes us to question God's character. It causes us to question his activity in the world. It causes us to question our own um, spirituality. If I've done something to deserve this, all of these things begin to swirl when these giants of sin and suffering enter our life, and they will. Often, they will come. If, they ha- if you have not experienced them yet, just, it's coming. And again, it will come repeatedly. I don't say that to depress you. That's just, that's the world that we live in, where sin and suffering are such a part. Um, I try to think of a better way to do this, and I can't. So I'm going to read you two chapters of 2 Samuel. So this will be story time. You can uh, lay down, get a blanket, and turn the lights off, whatever you need to do. I'm going to read through this. I'm going to make a few comments as we go. And then I'm going to wrap up uh, with a few closing thoughts. So this is uh, 2 Samuel 11, starting at verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, that was the commander of his armies, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? All right, pause here just to give you a little more context. I don't think that Bathsheba was a stranger to David. Might have been, but I don't think so. Her husband, Uriah, was part of David's special bodyguard. He had a group of 37 men. They called them the 30. I don't know why instead of calling them the 37, but they called them the 30. There were 37 of them, and Uriah was one of them. So this is one of David's bodyguards. Bathsheba's dad was also one of these bodyguards, and her granddad was a guy named Ahithophel, who was David's number one counselor. So maybe he didn't know who she was, but he knew her granddad, he knew her dad, and he knew her husband, and her dad and her husband regularly risked their life for him. 
what he's about to do is not acceptable whether she's a random woman or not. But knowing that he was that interconnected with her family makes it all the more treacherous. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from, from her uncleanness. So that meant she was not pregnant um, before they were together. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Now, sometimes for us, we think that we fall into sin because there's been this really clever, subtle trap that's been laid for us. And we just stumbled into it and would have happened to anybody. And, you know, the devil's really smart and he just, he just tricked us into it. That happens this much of the time. This much of the time, we sin because we're stupid. And that's what David, he was stupid. If you're a king, and it's the time when kings are supposed to be at war, where should you be? At war. Not walking around on your roof, looking at women, taking a bath. That's it. For most of us, think back to the areas where you struggle with sin. The times where you've fallen. Usually we don't fall. We usually run straight into it. Those times, if how, how, how often was the setup you were not where you were supposed to be? Or you were, you were where you should not have been? And that was David. If he had just been with his army, 2 Samuel 11 through 15 aren't there. Go back and read those. They are devastating chapters. After this, David, he's crippled as a father from here on out. He can't discipline his sons. They run ragged over him. There is massive rings of chaos because he didn't go to war. Now, I don't know why he didn't go. I don't know if he was old. I don't know if he was tired. I don't know if they said, you're so important, we can't risk having you on the battlefield. I don't, I don't, who knows? But the bottom line is, he knew where he should have been. He wasn't there. That left him wide open to temptation. And the same thing is true for us. We've said before, we can't, our job is not to manage our evil desires. Remember the the rock climbing wall. The goal is to get rid of the handhold so sin doesn't have anything in your heart to grab onto. That's what we want, but that's a lifelong process. And until we, as we move towards that, we need to be smart about managing the temptations that come our way because they will. You go a long way to helping yourself if, you're ju- if you'll just commit to being where you're supposed to be and not being where you shouldn't be. Don't go to the website. Just don't. You shouldn't be there. Don't have that conversation. Don't go with that. You know you're smart. Just be smart about it, and you'll avoid much temptation. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. He didn't care. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, did not go down to his house. You see what David's trying to do there. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he said, Why haven't, uh, haven't you come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. So there you've got this contrast between Uriah's uh, righteousness and David's absolute unrighteousness. This, this whole idea of not being where you're supposed to be, the ark at this point is really symbolic of God's presence. Wherever the ark is, that's where God is. 
the ark is in the field and David is back home. So not only he's not where he should be as a king, he's not where he should be as a follower of God. He's not near. He's created this distance, which again makes him, sets him up for this. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So David sends Uriah's death notice through him. He's carrying his death sentence with him to Joab. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So what you have is there's a siege going on. And in a siege, really no one has to die. All you're doing, the Israelite army is cutting off supplies going into this city. And at some point, they're going to run out of food and they're going to give up. So it's a waiting game. What David says is push up close to the wall and fight. And he knows that doing that is going to get Uriah killed. There's precedent in the Old Testament of that. that's what happens. You push someone close to the wall, that's what happens, and that's what Joab says here. So Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed this messenger, when you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may, may flare up. It would flare up because Joab did a it, was a, it was poor military strategy. He may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on her from the wall? so that he died in Thebes. Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say, also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So the messenger sent out, when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had said. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us. They came out against us in the open. We drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city. So he's basically saying that's, kind of, that's just what happens. War's bad and people die. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah heard that her, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him after the time of mourning was over. That's a week. David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Just to um, clear up one point, there's no evidence that um, David forced Bathsheba to do any of this. Everything kind of linguistically says she was a willing participant. David initiated, but Bathsheba was a willing participant in all of this as well. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was a prophet. When he came to him, he said there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So during, in this culture, sometimes they would have sheep. What, what y'all do with dogs, that's what they did. Not me, because I'm not a dog guy. What they did with dogs, what y'all do with dogs is what they did with sheep. So it's your family pet, not just some animal uh, that sleeps outside. So that's the picture here. This guy's got this one lamb that's really his pet now a traveler came to the rich man but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him instead he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him david burned with anger against the man and said to nathan as surely as the lord lives the man who did this deserves to die he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity then nathan said to david you're the man this is what the Lord, the God, of Israel, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. 
If all this had been too little, I've given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Notice that God holds David personally responsible. It's not Joab. It's not whoever shot the arrow. It's David killed Uriah. Intent is everything with the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and and give them to one who is close to you. He'll lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. That was the punishment for adultery. But because by doing this, you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went to his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of the house stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves. He realized the child was dead, and he asked, Is the child dead? Yes, he's dead. David got up from the ground. After he'd washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. The servants asked, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you you get up and eat. He said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live, but now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will not go to him, but he will return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan, the prophet, to name him Jedidiah. Jedidiah means the Lord loves. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah, so that was the city that they were fighting against originally, of the Ammonites, and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David, saying, I fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I'll take the city and be named after me. So David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked it and captured it. He took the crown from the head of their king, and it was placed on David's head. He took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws, iron picks, axes, and he made them work at brick-making. He did this to all the Ammonite towns, and then David and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. So that's a pretty gruesome stretch there. Um, Most likely, all of that took place in about a year, nine months. So that's that's the timeline there. You can go back and read Psalm 32, and you can kind of see David's perspective on what was going on during that time. You can see the break when Nathan confronts him uh, as you read through. You can see how he felt beforehand and then what happened after he was confronted. So we've got this, this, this connection between sin and suffering. And again, it's not one-to-one. David and Bathsheba sinned, but they seemed to suffer the least. Uriah didn't do anything wrong. He's dead. Baby doesn't do anything wrong. He's dead. There are these other soldiers who also got pushed up with Uriah. They didn't do anything wrong. They're dead, so now their wives and children are orphans and widows. There's this, these rings of suffering emanating out from this sin, and it seems like the guys that committed the sin got off the hook the easiest. And for us, if we, when we try to download that into our own life and we look around at what's going on, it's, 
It doesn't make sense. And then somebody says, like me, says God is good, and you say, prove it. You read the story. How does that work? That God is good, and we've got this nasty ball of suffering, and it seems like the guys that committed the sin got off the easiest, and people who were innocent from our perspective suffered the most. And I'm going to take some time and lay a framework. For some of you, you don't need this, but there's some of you who do. You've got to have a framework for dealing with issues of sin and suffering because those giants are going to come. If you haven't experienced them, you will. And when they come, if you don't have a, a framework for dealing with them, a context for seeing those things, they will derail you. They will cause you to question God's character and nature. They'll cause you to question your own sanity as you try to figure out how am I supposed to get through this and hold on to God at the same time. It can stop your relationship with the Lord cold and eventually you shrivel up and die. I'm going to tell you where I'm coming from. You don't have to agree with me. The reason I'm coming from this place is because I think it's right and so I'm going to talk like it's right. You can disagree, then you've got to come up with your own. It needs to be biblically based. It needs to be theologically sound. That means you need to be able to support it from the Bible. It needs to make sense of what we know about God's character and nature, and it needs to be true to life. If it doesn't work in the world that we live in, then it's just words on a page. Maybe that works in school, but that doesn't work for where we live now. It's got to make sense. So again, you don't have to go with me on this, but there's, you, to me, you've got to come up with some framework for dealing with sin and suffering, and this is mine. God does not cause or allow suffering, but he creates the possibility for suffering. God creates the possibility for suffering, but he does not cause and he does not allow. So way back when, before creation, God decided, I'm going to create. To me, highest value, highest motivation, highest good is love. God is love. This love demands expression. He is hungry for someone to shower his love on. We're hungry for God because we need him. Ecclesiastes 3 says he's put eternity in our hearts. So there's a, there's a void in everyone's heart that is yearning to be filled with life with a capital L. And we look for all different ways to fill that. Relationships, success, status, accomplishments, whatever. But ultimately, that's a hunger for God, and we will continue to be hungry until we find our completeness in him. We're hungry for him because he needs us. He's also hungry for us, but not because he needs us, but because he wants us. He's love, and that love is looking for an object. It demands expression. So he creates a world and says, the highest good in this world is for you to choose to love me back. And that's the second point. Love demands freedom. So love is the highest good, and love demands freedom. If you can't say no, your yes doesn't mean anything. Think of someone you love. Now imagine when you're with them tonight or tomorrow, whenever that is, you say to them, honey, I love you, or whatever else you would say to them, person, I love you, they're not your honey, whatever, you say that to them, mom, I love you, and, and they say back, well, you think you love me, but I've actually been spiking your coffee every day for the past however many years with love juice. You haven't made the choice. How do you, that's, love demands freedom. You have to be able to say yes or no, accept or reject. Love is the highest good, love demands freedom, freedom entails risk. If we can say yes, we can also say no, and there are consequences. Saying no to God, that's the definition of sin. Suffering always follows sin. So the highest good is love. Love demands freedom. Freedom entails risk. 
and that risk opened the door for suffering. Let's say for me, I say swimming pools. That's the highest thing, the highest and the best, to live life with a swimming pool in your backyard. The, that's the best thing I can do for my kids is to give them a swimming pool. Life is better with a swimming pool in your backyard. And so I put one in. And we put the fence up and the warning signs and all that. We put one in. We've got a swimming pool because that, to me, that's it. That's the pinnacle of it's the highest good. I come home one day, and it's a nightmare scenario. There's a police car and the ambulance and the fire truck all lined up outside. I run back, and there's this kid laying on the side of the pool, and they're trying to resuscitate him. He jumped the fence, and he fell in the pool. He couldn't swim. Did I cause that to happen? No. I didn't push him in the pool. Did I allow that to happen? No. I didn't see him drowning and walk by. Did I create the possibility that that could happen? Absolutely. When I put the pool in, I knew there was a possibility some kid who doesn't know how to swim but knows how to climb is going to jump the fence and fall in. And I decided it was worth the risk. I said it's worth the risk that somebody might get hurt because of the good of having a swimming pool in my backyard is so large. That's what God did. He said, the good of us being able to choose to love him, it's worth the risk of suffering. He knew what he was doing. He knew when he set things up, there was a very real possibility that we could have to suffer. And he rolled the dice because it was worth it to him. Now, you can argue with him about that. You can put on the gloves and y'all can get in the ring. And if you've got a better plan, then you can tell him. If there's a better world that you could have created where there wasn't the possibility of suffering, Let's see it. Take it to him and maybe he'll make some changes. For the rest of us, I, I can't come up with anything. That doesn't mean to me that suffering is good. I don't think it's good. I think it runs counter to God. I, suffering is one of the things God is going to get rid of at the end of time. Pain, suffering, crying, tear, all of that stuff. He's going to get rid of that. It's not a good. God uses it for good, but it's not a good. And so what I say is he must have known what he was doing. I look at the massive suffering in the world, and what, all I can say is God's smarter than me. He's more loving than me. He's got more invested than me. He's kinder than me, so it must be worth the risk. He must have looked at it and said, it's worth it to risk the suffering that we all endure for the opportunity for us to say yes to him in a loving relationship. That's how I deal with the problem of sin and suffering and evil in the world. Again, you might not, that might not do anything for you, then you come up with your own. But those things are going to come at you, and you've got to have a context for dealing with them. So for me, when I see suffering, I see four possibilities. Sometimes we suffer due to our own sin. I robbed a bank, I go to jail. I'm suffering for the choices that I made. Sometimes we suffer for the sins of others. I rob a bank, my wife and my kids then don't have a husband, they don't have a father, and they don't have any money coming in. They're suffering for my sin. You see that in this story. Uriah, the baby, these other men and their families, they're all suffering because of the sin of David and Bathsheba. Sometimes we suffer because we live in a fallen world, the consequences of Adam's sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, it brought, it brought sin with a capital S into creation. Original, Adam and Eve had perfect DNA. They weren't prone to anything. We are. Our DNA is flawed. We've got glitches in the system that are nobody's, none of our faults. And we come down with something or we get something, it's because we live in a fallen world. And sin was introduced way back when, and we're still reaping the consequences of that. To me, you can put a lot, you can put 
hurricanes and you can put earthquakes and you can kind of lay all of those things on this. We live in a fallen world. Sometimes we sin because of demonic activities. Jesus is clear. We have an enemy who his, his mission is to steal and kill and destroy and sometimes he's effective. So we suffer because of Lucifer's sin. Way back when, Lucifer used to be an angel and he rebelled against God. That's sin. He rejected God. Went his own, and we pay, we're paying for that. We're paying for the consequences of his sin even now. Good luck figuring out what's what. I don't know. Pat Robertson says Haiti has an earthquake because they made a pact with the devil. Whatever. I don't know. He doesn't know. He's just talking. And I don't know either. In the Bible, one of David's wives, Michael, she can't have a baby. And the reason she can't have a baby is because God, he, that's her punishment. He judges her for her pride. In the New Testament, there's a woman named Elizabeth who also can't have a baby. It has nothing to do with God's judgment on her at all. She's a righteous woman. I don't know. In Genesis 6, there's a worldwide flood because people are so wicked. We had floods in Cobb County six months ago. Is that because we were so wicked? I don't know. Pick, pick one. Pull one out. I don't know. Take one out of the hat. This is the thing for us. You always deal with sin the same way, and you always deal with suffering the same way, regardless of the cause. You'll go nuts trying to figure out the cause and trying to parse where, where this is coming from and did I deserve this. There is no fair. God is not fair. Fair is not a kingdom value. Read the Bible. It's not in there. God is merciful. He doesn't give us what we do deserve. And God is gracious. He gives us what we don't deserve. He's not fair. He is just, and at the end of time, he'll make everything right, but he doesn't run on our timetable. And so for where we live now, it's mercy and it's grace. If you want fair, you've got to find somebody else. Because it's, it's not him. It's Allah. He's fair. So you can do that if you want. He is. You, he's got a book, and he's got all your good stuff and all your bad stuff. There's an angel on each shoulder writing down what you do. And when you die, they're going to see which one outweighs the other. If you want to sign up for that, you can become a Muslim. If you want mercy and grace, stay here. Because that's who, that's who he is. But he's not fair. And if that's the standard you're going to hold him to, you're going to be disappointed often. It's mercy and it's grace. For us, sin. You deal with it three ways. If it's your own sin, you repent. Now, you don't need to, some of you are martyrs. And every time you suffer, you're going to say, it's my fault. You're just one of those people. It's not every time. Maybe sometimes. Jesus says the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and guilt and righteousness. He will let you know if you screwed up. If there's suffering in your life because of your sin, he's going to tell you. Because the point of that suffering is to get you to repent. He's not going to hide it from you. So you ask, and if he doesn't, if you don't, if, if, you have, if you can't think of anything that you've done wrong, you say, God, is this, is this on me? Is there some sin issue in my life? And he'll let you know. And if he doesn't, then you move on. Don't beat yourself up. You repent of your own sin. If, if your sin has caused someone else to suffer, you make restitution. Zacchaeus is a tax collector in Luke 19. He's been robbing people blind for years. He meets Jesus. He repents. He says, you know what? I'm going to pay back four times everything I've stolen. If your sin has caused someone else to suffer, you've got to make it right with them. You pay them back, whatever that looks like, depending on the sin. And if it's somebody else's sin that's caused you to suffer, you, you have to forgive them. No ifs, ands, or buts. Every time. 
You don't have to stay in a relationship with them. You don't have to put yourself in a position where they can continue to wear you out, but you have to forgive them. That's Regardless of the root of your suffering, that's how you deal with sin. You repent of your own, you make restitution where it's necessary, and you forgive other people. Suffering, again, it's simple, regardless of the underlying causes. Read from Romans through Jude. The theme of suffering runs all through the New Testament. And the prescription is the same all the way through, and it's hanging there. Just be faithful. That's what you do. We're supposed to be faithful. There are places where Paul says we should consider it joy because Jesus suffered, and so we're suffering too. If that does anything for you, you can grab onto that. Hang in there. Don't give up. Persevere. Whatever words you want to use, it's the same thing. That's what we do with suffering. We hang in there. And for your suffering, my responsibility is to get in there with you. That's what I do. 1 Corinthians 12 says that if one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. So if you're suffering, my job, I can't fix it most of the time. I can't get you a job. I can't help you have a baby. There's not a lot I can do. But I can get in there with you as much as I can. And that's our responsibility as the body. It's those elders who are watching David. He's weeping and he's fasting and they don't know what to do. They're helpless. Just, just be there. That's, that's what we need to do for one another. There's a story in Mark 2, I think it is, where there's a guy who's paralyzed and his friends hear that Jesus is in a house. And so they get this guy on a mat and they take him to Jesus and they, they cut a hole in the roof and, and let this guy's mat down so he can get in front of Jesus and Jesus winds up healing him. That's the picture for the rest of us. You might not be suffering. You might not be the guy laying on the mat. But you have a responsibility to get those who are to him. And that's what we're going to do now. Bo and the team are going to come up. Uh, we're going to spend some time in worship. And this is what I want you to do. If you're suffering, and be honest, don't be a hero. If you're suffering, this is what I want you to do. I want you to grab onto that. We've said before that in worship, our responsibility is to engage with God. It's his responsibility to show us something about himself. And what I'm asking is for him to show us his goodness. That's, that's what we need. I can't fix it. I can't explain it. I don't have anything that's emotionally satisfying for you. The, you know, the, the baby died. I can't, there's nothing I can do about that. That's what it says. All I can say is God is good, and in the midst of your suffering, that's what you need. You need to know the goodness of God. So if you're suffering, bring that to the Lord. I'm going to pray that he would show his goodness to you. For those of you who aren't, your job during this, these next couple of songs is you're the friends who are carrying people to Jesus. And the way you do that is by worshiping. You create an atmosphere here where people are free to respond to the Lord and to hear him. And you do that, you welcome him here by worshiping. And so that's what we're going to do. Then we're going to do some baptisms, which is a very tangible expression of the goodness of God. At Jesus' baptism, you hear, the Father says, you're my son. That's an identity statement. Whom I love, value. With you, I'm well pleased. Status. All of those are good things. So we're going to do some baptisms. Then we're actually going to, we're going to close with uh, some ministry at the end. So that's where we're headed. You guys can stand up. Bo is going to lead us back into worship. I'm going to pray. And again, your, your responsibility right now is if you're suffering, you bring that to the Lord. And if you're not suffering, you work on bringing people who are to him. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll worship God. We do thank you that you're good, um, even when we can't see it. And I know even talking this morning, it's pulling a scab off an old wound for some people. But you're the, you're the cure. 
And so I, I don't have any words. My prayer is just that in whatever way we would understand, you would show us your goodness for the kids, for the adults, for people who are Christians, for people who are not. God, I pray that this morning we would all know that you're a good father, that you would minister into these places of, of pain in our life. If there's sin issues, God, I pray that we would take care of those, but particularly for those who are suffering and maybe don't know why. God, we pray that over the next 10 or so minutes, uh, your goodness, um, that's all we've got is 10 minutes. And so, God, I pray that you would quickly download an expression of your goodness into our hearts. In Jesus' name.